Hey everybody, our board slash OITE podcast companion book is now available for you to follow along and take notes with our podcast review. Just click the link in the description. St. John Associates is a physician recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They have an orthopedic surgery team who has over 16 years and hundreds of matches in the ortho market at no cost to physicians. Get started with your job today at stjohnjobs.com slash ortho. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to yet another episode of the Nailed It Ortho podcast. We are continuing on with our board slash our OITE review series, and we are uh, continuing on this pediatric train. So uh, let's just hop into today's episode. Uh, I'll stop talking. You are now listening to Nailed It, the orthopedic surgery podcast featuring doctors Jay Fitz and Wendell Cole. Um, now, what are the indications to operate on a pediatric humeral shaft fracture? Uh, again, just like the clavicle open fractures, just about every open fracture, maybe I think the pendulum is swinging a little bit for pediatric both bone fractures, but um, uh, open fractures of the humerus and floating elbow, just because it's it's really difficult to uh, stabilize two fractures in the same long arm cast and or functional brace plus a long arm cast and all that stuff. It's, it's very hard to do. So if you can operatively stabilize a uh, humerus fracture along with a both bone forearm fracture, then um, I think that that kid's going to regain their, their mobility and their uh, independence a lot faster than trying to non-surgically treat uh, a floating elbow type of injury. Um, and then going down to the uh, elbow a little bit more, what is the classification used for supracondylar humerus fractures? And then what what are the different types? Yeah, and this is, a, I guess, this whole supracondylar humerus fractures are, are one of those high-yield topics in pediatrics. So that's something you got to know. Uh, so this is a Gartland classification. So there's four types. Um, type one is non-displaced fracture. So you might just see like a fat pad sign. Um, but again, it's non-displaced. A type two um, is going to be a displaced fracture with an intact posterior hinge. Um, type three, you're going to have a completely displaced fracture with no posterior hinge. And then type four is going to be completely displaced fracture with no posterior hinge. And it's going to be unstable inflection and extension and um and there are some different subtypes with like type three and type two but i think for the boards as long as you know like these type you know what type two is what type three is and what type four you should be okay um and so going forth what's the difference between an extension and a flexion type of supercondylar humerus fracture so extension type um is the most common type and it's basically the the hinge is posterior or the forearm kind of goes away from the body. Um, and uh, you'll, you definitely, all of these kind of Gartland uh, classifications, at least uh, type one, two, and three, all are extension type injuries. A flexion type injury is when the hinge is in, along the anterior cortex and it almost looks like the elbow is flexing at the fracture site instead of the actual joint itself. And so these flexion type injuries, less common, um, 
are typically higher energy and are more unstable, and that's why they're classified more as a type four uh, Gartland uh, rather than uh, something else. And so, uh, good thing to just keep in mind, and really more for uh, either identification and passing on that information to an attending, or understanding the fracture fixation methods and the uh, in the operating room while you're treating these uh, with surgery. And um, what are some of the radiographic lines used to evaluate these supracondylar humerus injuries? Yeah, so, you know, one is going to be the anterior humeral line, which you'll see on a, a lateral. Um, so this line should kind of bisect the capitellum or be in the anterior third of the capitellum. I've seen it described both ways. And also is a Bauman angle. Um, and that's measured on the AP. And that's going to show your kind of your coronal plane reduction accuracy. Um, so again, the anterior humeral line, if you're looking at a lateral, you want that you take a line just down the anterior cortex of the humerus, it should bisect the capitellum. And on the AP, uh, you have Bauman's angle and pretty much this should help um, help you help you make sure that your coronal plane reduction is accurate. And also just for a bonus uh, on the when you're looking at the lateral on the x-ray, the radius should always line up with the capitellum. So if you draw a straight line, it should line up with the capitellum because pediatric elbow fractures can be a little tricky sometimes to determine exactly what's going on since not everything is ossified. And one thing I did want to mention is that with our extension types, and you might have mentioned it, with, with our extension type injuries, the most common uh, nerve injury is going to be the AIN or the anterior interosseous nerve. And they always um, ask, you know, they never ask the AIN. They always say what you're going to see. And that's like, you know, uh, weakness with IP joint flexion. And then with your flexion type injuries, your ulnar nerve is going to be the nerve that's most uh, commonly injured. So what is... I guess the typical treatment for these supracondylar humerus fractures. Yeah, type one, um, those are the the ones as you as you said, where on the lateral, it doesn't look like there's a fracture even there, but you see um that sail sign or you see a joint effusion. Um, it's just it's better to be on the safe side and prevent displacement and just put that kid in a long arm cast for three weeks, take it off, and then you can kind of release them to do whatever they want to do. Uh, type twos, um, it's one of those that, you know, I think depending on the surgeon, they will uh, close, reduce, and cast. And the problem with that is you do typically have to cast in a little bit of more flexion than 90 degrees to help that extension deformity from coming back. And so that's why a, a lot of surgeons still feel comfortable just putting two pins uh, in from the lateral from the lateral side up to the medial metaphysis and stabilizing this just so that they can kind of sleep better at night. But you can technically close, reduce, and cast a type two. Um, if you do cast in greater than 90 degrees of flexion, you definitely 100% have to give them compartment syndrome return precautions. Um, and and that's that's the big concern there. And then type three and four, those ones are definitely unstable. And you are going to uh, close reduce versus open reduce if you have to and place uh, pins across the fracture. And um, I won't steal your thunder here, but what is the <laughs> typical pin configurations and advantages to each? 
Yeah. So, you know, typically you can do the cross pins or three lateral pins. So with the cross pins, you have a couple of pins coming from lateral to medial, and then you have a pin coming from medial to lateral. In a lab, it is more biomechanically stable, but it also runs with a risk of the ulnar nerve uh, of an ulnar nerve injury. I mean, if you think of it, you're putting a medial pin. So if you don't protect the ulnar nerve um, as you should, then you can also injure that. And then, but you can also do three lateral pins, um, which has uh, comparable clinical stability uh, compared to the cross pins. So again, you can you can do three lateral pins. You want to make sure you get good um, spread across the fracture site. Um, and I think the one one time where I've seen like it was indicated to use a medial pin. It was like there's a lot of medial comminution. Um, and so you want something to kind of support that medial column. And so also, if you want a, a deeper dive into this whole talk of supercondylar humerus fractures, we have uh, a, a previous episode with Dr. Weiss um, on supercondylar humerus fractures, episode 12, which, man, that was a long time ago. <laughs> um, <laughs> so um, what should you do? You know, they always give us these like little situations on these on these exams. And so what should you do if prior to surgery, the patient had a well-perfused hand with a palpable pulse, so pink, you know, pink, uh, pink fingers, uh, palpable pulse, and after pinning, there's not a palpable pulse, but the hand is still pink and perfused. What do you do then? So in that in that instance, um, you want to keep the pins, keep the cast, and you want to monitor that patient uh, over the next twenty three hours. Um, there's consideration that you could bivalve the cast at that point um, to kind of release some of the the pressure from the cast. But the thought is that just with the surgery that um, if they still have a perfused hand, it's it's unlikely that you caught the artery in the fracture site and you pinched it off. Um, and so it may just be some sort of vasospasm that's causing this, but um, you don't need to really rush too much uh, to the operating room. You can always put a uh, pulse ox on the one of the fingers uh, on the casted hand, and that will help kind of monitor the perfusion status of the hand. Um, but then uh, on the on the flip side, what should you do if the extremity had pulses? After you reduced and pinned, you lost pulse, and the uh, hand the hand starts to uh, kind of blanche it's it's starting to get cold it doesn't have the same color that it used to yeah so this one i mean your your, your first step is you should remove the pins and redisplace the fracture you know thinking that you may like you just mentioned you may have caught the artery or something in the fracture side so you remove the pins um displace the fracture and see you know if you get return of like these pulses return of uh return of the perfusion and if you're still not getting any of that, then you may need an exploration. I think the answer choices that are not correct are going to be angiography um, because you kind of know what what artery it typically is. Um, so you're not going to that's not the correct answer on the test for the most part. But again, so if they had pulses and after you reduce it, you lost pulses and a hand was not perfused, you remove the pins and redisplace the fracture. Now, what are some you know, say we we fixed it or they have this injury and the parent asks like, okay, well, how will little Johnny be down the line? So what are some complications of supercondylar humerus fractures? Uh, so some of them are 
cubitus varus. Uh, so they get varus deformity at the elbow. Um, they get uh, some recurvatum uh, if the fracture isn't uh, anatomically reduced or if they are an older patient and they their model the remodeling potential is uh, is limited. Um, they can get elbow stiffness. It's pretty rare though, just because kids are very good at um, getting back to their activities because, they don't have secondary gain, like a job that they hate or something else that, that they just don't <laughs> want to get back to. They want to get back to running, jumping, playing with their friends. And so they will use their arms and they will get out back pretty much all of their mobility. And then uh, this Volkman's ischemic contracture. And that's what I was talking about with if you do treat some of these type twos in a cast and you cast greater than 90 degrees, you have to watch out for this ischemic contracture. And basically it's a contracture of the anterior compartment of the arm and they get uh, flexion deformity at their fingers because their, uh, their flexor muscles lose blood supply uh, due to a kind of a low grade compartment syndrome that happens uh, in that volar compartment because of the hyperflexion casting. Um, we, we were more aggressive at my program in treating uh, supracondylar fractures and had a very low threshold to just put pins in because they wanted to avoid this uh, Volkman's contracture. Um, there was one patient that I know of that was treated non-surgically with a type 2 uh, supracondylar humerus fracture. And the only reason they were treated non-surgically is it was the attending's kid and... Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, sure. When you have a board certified orthopedic surgeon at home monitoring you every hour while you <laughs> sleep at night, well, yeah. then that's probably reasonable. But to ask a, a family who, I don't know, maybe they got three or four other kids and they're managing a whole bunch of stuff and, and one of the parents is out of the home at work and all that, like, there's a whole lot of social issues that come into play that, it's, it's a lot to ask a parent to monitor their kid every single hour over that night to make sure that they are still perfusing their hand and they're not getting a contracture that it's, it's just easier sometimes to put the pin in, uh, cast them at 90 degrees and, and have less worry about it. But that's neither here nor there. That's not a testable thing. They're not going to, they're not going to test you on, ooh, is this the patient that I'm going to cast or is this the patient I'm going to pin? They're usually going to show you a type three supracondylar humerus fracture. And they're going to ask you which pin configuration is biomechanically superior. And then they'll show you x-rays of cross pins, two pins, three pins, no pins. And, and you just have to decide from there. Those that's really the important factor here. Not necessarily uh, anecdote about a personal attendings kid. So <laughs> uh, focus more on the pins and the classification than anything else with supracondylar humerus fractures. Um, and then say you have a kid displaced supracondylar humerus fracture, you pin them and uh, you don't feel comfortable sending this kid home and you get a call at two o'clock in the morning because the pain medication is just not helping him out. What's your concern? Yeah, you want to be concerned about compartment syndrome. So anytime you know you're seeing the question or even a realize where 
they're you know they're needing pain meds more and more often and then now the pain meds aren't starting to cover the pain or getting really uh, uh anxious and 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 having a lot of anxiety you had to be worried about compartment syndrome that's the one you should go in and see that patient and examine them and, and see exactly how they're doing because you don't want to miss compartment syndrome in a kid um now continuing forth uh what is the what part of the elbow is first and last to ossify uh, I'm glad that we're just doing the first and the last because I know that they're not going to test you on what's the third one to ossify. Um, so the first one is the capitellum and the last one is the lateral epicondyle. And for those of you who really want to get into it, I think it's it's cryto, C-R-I-T-O-E. So the uh, capitellum and then the R, I think is for the radial head. Uh, and then I is for inside which is the trochlea and then o is for outside which is the lateral epicondyle or something and then um I, o is for olecranon and then yep e is for epicondyle or so sorry no then the c is for uh I don't know. I can't remember. Yeah, I, I, I just I just looked it up here and heard of that but yeah c is for the capitellum at one year R is for yeah. the radial head at three years. I is for the internal epicondyle, which I, I assume they mean the medial epicondyle at five yeah. years. Yeah, that yeah, it's the I is internal and E is external. That's what I remembered, yep. but it, it didn't really make sense to me. <laughs> yep. Uh, T is trochlea, O is olecranon, and E is external epicondyle, like you just said, 11 yeah. years old. There you go. Oh, man. That's a lot. <laughs> you know, that's, that's another thing, man. We're putting together these notes, and I was like, ah, do I need to put all this here? <laughs> Um, so, so then, uh, kind of moving on from, from that. So you, we just said that the lateral epicondyle is the last to ossify. So it's a good transition in, into this, which is a similar type injury to a supracondylar humerus fracture, but its own distinct entity. What, uh, x-ray view is best to evaluate the lateral, uh, epicondyle or lateral condyle fractures? Yeah. So that's going to be the internal oblique view. Um, yeah, you know, in addition to the AP and lateral, uh, you want to get internal oblique view. That's going to help you see these uh, lateral condyle fractures a little bit more. And so what is the treatment for, again, these pediatric lateral con lateral condyle fractures? If they are non-displaced, <clears throat> you can treat them in a cast. Um, but for the ones who are even minimally displaced or obviously displaced, you you want to fix these just because they are not as uh, um, they, they don't heal as reliably as supracondylar humerus fractures, unfortunately. So if they are minimally displaced, uh, you can reduce and uh, use either divergent pins or a cannulated screw. And then uh, consider doing an arthrogram to assess the joint congruity uh after uh, fixation is complete um smooth pins may be the uh preferred exam answer but it it'll be pretty uh mean of the boards to uh or the oite to um to say oh this would be best treated as pins versus a screw they'll mm -hmm. most likely ask you pins versus i don't know maybe like a plate or something that's vastly different for a minimally displaced fracture. If they are very displaced, 
you are unlikely to get a good close reduction with those just because of interposed uh, periosteum. And so you're going to open that, um, reduce it, look at the joint, and uh, most likely use a screw, or even in this instance, you could consider using a plate if it's either comminuted and you need more stabilization or something like that. So um, minimally displaced lateral condyle fractures still get uh, fixation, and then very displaced ones pretty routinely get opened for the reduction. And um, the the biggest concern about these lateral condyle fractures is the blood supply. And where does the blood supply come from? Yeah, so it actually comes from posteriorly. So, you know, big thing with these lateral condyle fractures, when you're doing a dissection, you want to either go straight lateral, but you don't want to go posterior because the posterior, um, the, the blood supply comes in from posteriorly in the pediatric elbow. So again, if you're fixing a lateral condyle fracture, avoid a posterior uh, dissection because it could lead to osteonecrosis. Thank you all for listening to yet another episode of the Nailed Ortho Podcast. Hope you all are learning something. Uh, we've been talking a lot and had a lot of episodes on orthopedics, so we're continuing on. And hit the subscribe button, and we will see you all next week. St. John Associates is a physician recruiting firm that was recommended to us by one of our listeners. They have an orthopedic surgery team who has over 16 years and hundreds of matches in the ortho market at no cost to physicians. Get started with your job today at stjohnjobs.com ortho. Following that link will let them know that you found them through us.